0: The next case was presented by Dr. Robert Moss. I saw this 69-year-old woman this past May, and she's an emotionally frail Lebanese-American woman, and that description is from her children, grown children, with a chest wall recurrence of breast cancer. She had originally presented with a right breast cancer 14 years ago. We don't have records from then, but she described her breast as, quote, all shrunken with tumor, prior to her mastectomy, but it was not discolored in any way. She had a mastectomy, and nodes were apparently negative, and then she received, again, quote, low-dose chemotherapy, I don't know what that was. She was prescribed tamoxifen, but she was convinced that it caused cancer and never took it, and she never received any radiation therapy. Last June, she presented to another oncologist with something on the chest wall. She was initially told that it was a keloid, but it grew in size, and she was sent for a biopsy, and the surgeon declined, thinking it also was, he also felt it was benign. And finally, last March, after it had started to spread, she was seen by a local radiation oncologist who, again, recommended a biopsy, which showed a poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma consistent with a breast primary. ER was positive, PR negative, HER2 negative. And MRI at that time showed extensive right chest wall involvement, including skin, pectoral muscles, and axillary nodes, but no evidence of cancer in the left breast. When I saw her, most of the right chest wall was very indurated and erythematous. It went down below the rib cage and medially, initially to the mid-sternum, and eventually it spread even beyond the sternum to the contralateral chest. Was it uncomfortable or paritic? It was pruritic. Actually, that was her main complaint. A lot of paritis? A lot of paritis, yes. We gave her hydrocortisone cream, and that relieved the paritis. Any ulceration? No ulcerations. A PET scan was done and revealed only activity in the chest wall and right axilla. In terms of systemic therapy strategy at this point, we can also talk about radiation. Do you think it could have been radiated, or was it irradiatable? She had... Already been sent to radiation oncology prior to my seeing her, and they wanted to radiate her. But as we were watching this, it was spreading, so I was doubtful that this was going to encompass all of it and also, do you think that she would have been reliable to take her medications? any assessment in terms of, if you gave her, for example, an oral medication? Well, that actually crossed my mind after what she told me about tamoxifen. She always came in with her family, and they were very supportive, and I thought they would help out a lot, but it made me a little nervous about whether she would actually take an oral medication.
1: So let's talk about systemic therapy in this situation. Kevin, how would you be thinking through your overall strategy in a patient like that, and then again, the hormone treatment? Well, it's hard to judge this without, I guess, seeing it with your own eyes, but you're
2: describing something that isn't exactly life-threatening, but is symptomatically ominous. She itches. She's probably fairly miserable. She looks at it in the mirror. She's probably in distress. Hormonal therapy, while on the surface, perfectly appropriate because this is occurring 14 years on in an estrogen receptor-positive cancer, and it's likely, maybe, to be hormone-sensitive. This might be a situation where I might try to inflict chemotherapy on this woman. Now, her emotional fragility, notwithstanding, I would probably do something to make her feel better a little bit faster on the assumption that that would occur
1: with Which chemotherapy. chemo,
2: and what about Bev? Compliance issues, I guess, would always be a concern in a woman like this, so I would probably actually give her Taxol Bevacizumab, if I really thought that would make her feel better fastest. Taxol or NAB? If it was going to be with Bevacizumab, which I think would be appropriate, we'd give it to her with Taxol.
1: Taxol. Skip, how would you think
0: it through? Very similar. Actually, I had a case not too dissimilar to this, except it was a compliant woman who just, for a variety of social issues, wanted to try oral therapy first, and I actually went on and agreed to take some Faslodex and has just had a remarkable response to bevacizumab and weekly paclitaxel now. I mean, this sounds like it's an inflammatory situation. I've had these get ugly and get out of control or seen in a second opinion. So those kind of appearances really make you get aggressive. And again, which taxane? Weekly paclitaxel. The cost issue there when you're adding it to the cost of bevacizumab. I mean, I think that's also another vote plus the data in favor of the weekly paclitaxel.
1: What about choice of hormonal therapy in this situation? Do you prefer one of these three
3: approaches, Cliff? In terms of which hormone therapy? Yeah, when you do. I would to- use an aromatase inhibitor. Non-steroidal in AI? We typically start with a non-steroidal AI. At progression, we used to go pretty routinely to fulvestrant in the cases where patients had been on adjuvant tamoxifen. I have to say, that's a place again where a randomized phase three trial upends the perceptions that you have. And the effect trial was interesting. It reassured us that we could go to the steroidal aromatase inhibitor, Examestane, with equivalent results to a different kind of drug, Fulvastran, after the non-steroidal. I would have thought go from the AI to Fulvastran would be better. And the effect trial says that it's more or less equivalent. After that, I would go on to Fulvastran if they remained good candidates. And we have even have, with Matt Ellis, a trial of estradiol for such patients. I think that If they're hormone-responsive, one should eke out as long a benefit as you can. I suspect this patient, despite all this, would be likeliest to progress relatively fast on the hormone, and I would go to chemo then.
1: Just to pick up on that estradiol, because that (laughs) seems like it's kind of getting a lot of new interest. I know Matt's going to be presenting some stuff at San Antonio. It looks like it kind of works.
3: Well, you know, the history of Jim Ingle's trial from way back when of, I believe it was DES, I may be wrong, but I think it was DES versus him, is that with 30 years of follow-up, the truth is, small numbers, the survival was a touch better, if anything. That was the, the
1: DES versus tamoxifen? Yeah, t- the, the original t- trial that got tamoxifen used. So the
3: DES problem is it's more toxic acutely, but the interesting point is that those patients at least have the same long-term survival as tamoxifen, maybe better. There's a fast FAS signaling pathway that is upregulated in cell lines when cells are chronically estrogen-deprived, i.e. in the AI setting, and the notion is that that's a death pathway when stimulated by estrogen. So the idea here is you take these chronically AI treated patients, and when they progress, you give them estradiol. Now, the truth is, Matt's study has been interesting because although the data is still getting presented, there have clearly been responses. There have also been patients with very rapidly progressive disease. So this is still, in my opinion, experimental.
1: Julie, what about the trials looking at combinations of fulvestrant and an AI? The SWOG SO226 trial is a first-line metastatic trial of aromatase inhibitor plus-minus fulvestrant. With the aromatase inhibitor alone arm at progression, we strongly encourage sequencing to the fulvestrant. So we can't mandate, but we're trying to do a combination versus sequence of AI fulvestrant. We're pretty close to accrual. We'll probably finish accrual within about six months, a 650-some patient study. And we're awaiting the results of the this trial and another similar trial of the combination of AI fulvestrant in order to start the next adjuvant trial where we're thinking of looking at the combination in the early stage setting. So it'd be like an AI alone versus an AI plus fulvestrant in the adjuvant situation if it's positive or is any of these are positive. Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been talking about for a few years now.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So let's follow up with the patient, what happened, and then we'll go to the last case. My bias, I have to admit, is to use chemotherapy in these patients, but I just didn't feel that she was gonna tolerate chemotherapy at all. And I decided to start her on Fulvestrant. I wanted to avoid pills because I was afraid she wouldn't take the pills. Her family would get them and that would be the end of it. So at least the Fulvestrant would get into her. And I gave it to her with a loading dose. She did get radiation therapy. But I'm sure the radiation couldn't cover the entire port. I'm not sure exactly what the port was, but this was a very large area. Well, at this point in time, I saw her just two to three weeks ago. She was in complete remission. It was <laughs> hey, all good. gone.
1: That's a good thing. You don't hear too much about responses to fulvestrant, Kevin, but you know, it seems like most people use it pretty late also.
2: Well, I think that's part of what's cursed fulvestrant's reputation. It's never been used under circumstances where it had much of a chance to shine. But when it's been used and compared to other things under the similar circumstances, it's been no worse. I think it was a superb choice for this woman because of your concerns about compliance. I probably would have been too chicken to do it, but I think it's wonderful that it worked out the way it did because I think we all agree that witnessed responses to fulvestrant have been few.